We sent her an email explaining this fairly ambitious notion that we had to be the documentary filmmakers making a documentary uh, about her life. She wrote us back quickly with an email that essentially said, not yet. And we basically were like, yeah, you know, not yet. When you think about it, it's kind of like saying yes. That was Julie Cohen, one of the unrelenting directors of the mega-hit documentary RBG, talking about their subject, Supreme Court justice and pop culture icon, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with award-winning journalists here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I am joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. Lisa runs the DuPont Awards, among other things. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So, Lisa, we're coming up on nearly four years running this podcast together. Almost four. It's incredible. Over 50 episodes so far. And I've been reflecting about some of my favorite moments, but I know you have a favorite moment directly related to the RBG documentary. That's right. We've had so many outstanding world-class journalists come up here, but I, I will say that one of my favorite moments was witnessing the rock star phenomenon that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She actually made a surprise appearance at Columbia last year after a screening of this film, RBG. She was in this very building. That's right. And I was in the room with her, along with several hundred other people. She joined uh, the directors. One of whom is a professor here, Betsy West. The other one, Julie Cohen, is a grad. And we had the executive producer of CNN's Amy Antelis, who is also a grad of the J School. And didn't you sort of bring her into the room? I did, and I have many pictures to prove it. (laughs) No, it was very touch and go because Betsy was up on the stage in the conversation, and I was in touch with the U.S. Marshals who were making it all happen. It was very, very exciting. I think the room just went nuts when the justice walked in. That's right. And we were doing this series where we're looking back over some of our favorites. And uh, that's definitely among our favorite moments. But in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that you're not going to hear Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this podcast because we promised her that it was a closed event and there would be no press. And you don't break a promise to a Supreme Court justice. So since last year when we screened the film, a lot has happened to both the filmmakers and to the Supreme Court justice. She has battled one cancer scare, two broken ribs, and she's still going strong. She ushered in her 26th year on the bench this year. Joined by Brett Kavanaugh. Another big event this year. Yeah, and the film went on to win a DuPont Silver Baton right. in uh, January. First and foremost, in our minds, of course. Yeah, and it was nominated for an Oscar. And it just won an Emmy last month. I think it made $14 million. We should mention that, Wow. Big box office, too. So it's great to be bringing this conversation back again because it's still so timely. And, uh, Lisa, I think these guys also have another project in the works, right? That's right. It's very exciting. Big news just announced. And at the end of the episode, we'll tell you all about it. So here's the conversation moderated by Professor June Cross with RBG directors Betsy West and Julie Cohen and executive producer Amy Antelis from last November 2018. Julie, you were working in Court TV and Betsy, you had just finished Makers. How did you sort of jointly come to the decision that somebody needs to do a film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? 
Well, I mean, that is exactly what we said. Somebody needs to do a film about the notorious RBG, and it should be us. Backing up from that, Julie had worked with me on the Makers Project, for which we interviewed many women, including uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an interview I did in 2011. And then Julie subsequently interviewed Justice Ginsburg for the Sturgeon Queens because... About uh, fish. Yes, she's, she loves fish, fish. smoke fish. <laughs> And <laughs> so <laughs> many people do. Um, so then in you know, 2015, as her uh, fame was growing, that's when we thought, well, a lot of her fans really don't know the full story. And it's, we knew it was a pretty extraordinary story. It became even better as we got into it. But that was, that was the impetus, <laughs> I would How say. How did you persuade Justice Ginsburg to agree to take part in this? Very carefully, kind of obviously, someone of Justice Ginsburg's uh, stature is, is someone you want to approach um, with a lot of strategy, and we probably, there was a good year of like intense uh, strategizing, basically, um, and the first thing that we did, uh, because she did know each of us from these previous projects and also had really been a big fan and admirer of the completed Makers Project, not just the interview that she was in, but the whole, but the whole project. So we sent her an email um, explaining this fairly ambitious notion that we had to be the documentary filmmakers, making a documentary uh, about her life. She wrote us back quickly with an email that essentially said, not yet. We read that email quite carefully. We know she's a woman who chooses her words carefully, and we noted that two words that were not in it were no and never. So, you the know, when we're talking, when we're, yeah, when we're talking to an audience of a, a lot of um, journalists and filmmakers and people moving in that direction, um, you know, go out of your way to try to, take things positively and we basically were like yeah you know not yet when you think about it it's kind of like saying yes um so uh, so then we went back to the justice yeah you're more optimistic than than me there's no question that was definitely your first take my first take was oh no but yeah we went back a couple months later and then we gave her a list of people that we thought we'd start interviewing. We said, you know, we don't have to talk to you right away. We know how busy you are, but we'd love to interview these people. And she wrote back, and the first sentence was, I would not be able to give you an interview for at least two years. So this is in the summer of 2015. She's 82 years old. She said that. But the second paragraph said, however, if you are going to be interviewing people, you might want to consider. And then she listed three more people. Oh. So then we thought, all right, she's sort of in. Yeah. And that's when it's we... always a sure sign. Yeah. <laughs> then we started to yeah. look around to find someone to help us make this, and it took a little bit, but eventually we found Amy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, found Amy. So, Amy, what did CNN see in the idea? Well, you have to remember this was before the Me Too movement and before Donald Trump, which we all know has sort of amplified this film in a, in a way we couldn't have expected. But at the time... You know, I think that we were convinced that her story would be very, very interesting to CNN viewers. So this one seemed sort of like a no-brainer just because we cover the court, we're interested in the people on the court, and 
we clearly, as many of you probably have experienced tonight, don't know the full story of RBG. So I think for us it sort of fit very neatly into the kinds of things that we talk about on CNN, but also had the real opportunity for some really beautiful storytelling. Yeah, there is amazing storytelling. This is the third time I've seen it, and I'm really struck by how you merged the love story or how you wove the love story and the law story together. Can you talk a bit about how you approached the structure? and How long did it take you to get there? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a while. It was always our intention not to tell this story completely chronologically, to find a way to move back and forward in time. We were very lucky to have Carla Gutierrez as our enormously creative and talented editor. And it was Carla who flagged for us the idea that the Senate confirmation hearings provided a kind of narrative structure to the film and that perhaps we could use them. She's, she's really defending her life. She's talking about her life. So you can use those hearings to go forward and backward. That, that helped a lot. But, you know, just like our doc students do here, you know, we had the little yellow pasted things and different colors and we're moving the scenes around and, you know, trying to come up with a solution. It's like a ginormous puzzle, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's like you have all these threads of yeah. audio and video. They're like spaghetti. Right, and it was a, it was a really fun puzzle to put together. We knew we wanted current day in her 80s Justice Ginsburg to be a character throughout our story, not just someone that you were going to meet at the end, and that we wanted the verite footage to kind of appear throughout. And you, you say rightly, kind of weaving the love and personal stuff with the law, and we sort of wanted both all the time. One thing that kept happening in different cuts of the film that we would watch was like every time the love story came on we were all like oh like we like liked it so much so um so there were some cuts where we watched and we're like oh it seemed like there were like 20 minutes we're like where's marty like let's oh like let's take that let's take that sequence then and just move it like and then in our, our little like color board we would just move i mean for, fortunately there was actually a f really very large agreement between us about what was working and what wasn't, and then when it moved to the stage, the, the more petrifying stage of showing uh, Amy and her colleagues, I even think their notes tended to track with what we were thinking in terms of like what was working and what, what wasn't, and the tricky parts were just how to make what wasn't working work. Let me go to Amy. She had the wisdom when Betsy called her to say, yes, I'll take this film and we'll help you make it and send it to Sundance and make sure it gets launched. Over Just the past like five years. <laughs> so what wasn't working that you needed to work on? You know, I don't, I, I don't really recall anything being a mess at all. I just remember thinking that the, the cases were a big challenge. You know, how to put those cases into the film, the graphic treatment that I think they ultimately came up with somehow just kind of, you know, made it work. But I think the biggest challenge in my mind was how to weave in the law. I think the Marty stuff was like a no-brainer. You happen to, you guys should tell the story of how you got the footage because that, yeah. obviously that footage made that whole storyline. But I th always thought that the biggest challenge was going to be getting to the heart of the cases and putting them in, a, you know, making them visual. Yeah. How do you make, you know, a Supreme Court case visual? And I think they did an amazing job in the end. How did you make the Supreme Court case visual? 
Well, I, you know, we focused on the cases that she argued before the Supreme Court. Those cases have audio, and it's so wonderful to hear her voice. And when we started to lay out the cases, even without the graphics, there's just a power to her words and what she says. We were very lucky that the two characters in those cases that we really focused on, Sharon Frontiero and Steven Weisenfeld, are still very much with us and could tell their personal stories because so much of the work that she was doing, you know, has to do with human beings in a in a in a you know very personal way. So um, you know, we had some good good elements. But I agree with you, Amy, that. The reason we wanted to do the film was because of those cases in the 70s. That is the heart of the film, and obviously all the other stuff is really important, but if we didn't get that right, then that would have been bad. Julie, what, yes. what do you think was the hardest thing for you to work on? You know, I think the hardest thing was just weaving all the elements to seem like you're telling one coherent story with a character who has had an extremely big life. There were lots of cases that we just left out altogether because, you know, including some that were important because there wasn't a living, colorful character to tell them or because it was a case where Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written the brief but hadn't argued the case. And we were, you know, ha having a news background for both of us, I think, really helped. We were very, like, viciously slashing away Drowning things. We weren't, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't handing in, like, these incredibly long cuts. We were, like, when we would look at a rough, we were like, oh, this part's boring. This is too, bad. get rid of this, get rid of that. And the editor was really surprised by that. She was like, you know, usually I'm ha having the opposite argument with she directors who were trying to push. Yeah, she was like, wait a second. What, what are you guys doing? Can't lose that. Yeah, I mean, she's she was used to working with, you know, more in, independent film directors that she would be convincing them, please, can we take this down 15 minutes and begging us to leave some stuff in. How did you find, I'm sorry, Amy, go ahead. I was just going to say that we so appreciated that because I think the pri I think the film right before yours came to us at a, th a length of three and a half hours. <laughs> And, and it had to be like 87 minutes. So, you know, that was real discipline and real talent and real skill. Well, and just like strategizing to like, don't leave it. If you hand in a big cut to your executives and bosses, then they're gonna cut stuff out. Like, don't do that. Spare yourself the angst and cut it yourself. Choose what you're gonna cut. Yeah. Right. Don't let somebody else choose it for you. Can you talk about where you got the, how you got the archive? And how you, you know, like, where did you find all of it? I mean, it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the most amazing was that we were having, uh, I think, lunch with one of her official biographers, and uh, she happened to mention that she had a box of things from Marty's family because they meet with Justice Ginsburg every August to kind of debrief her about what's been going on. They're writing a very comprehensive. <laughs> Uh, biography and said we have all this material from Marty's family and this and that and some you know d a DVD and blah 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 we're like what <laughs> there's a DVD in there <laughs> stop and you know a couple of weeks later the DVD arrived in the mail and it was a lot of home movies of people that we didn't recognize <laughs> at all people having a really good time at picnics and other things and then at the toward the very end there they are you know the young Ruth Bader and Marty Ginsburg at Cornell and we were just like you know so happy <laughs> yeah and we talk about aggressively cutting things but that was an example where pretty much every frame of home movie that included either the young Ruth Bader 
and Marty Ginsburg ended up in our film, often in, you know, beautifully edited by, by Carla and often in, like, very lovingly slow motion, <laughs> which, uh, you know, which actually sort of brings out the heart and emotion of footage also, but on the other hand, we're just trying. Because people, uh, like, people in the 19... 40s and 50s were very bad with their new home movie cameras. They'd like go to a face and then they'd like, they like, there was never a shot that lasted for more than two seconds. <laughs> um, but like you wouldn't sort know of like that. now. Yeah. Um, and then you had family photo albums. Were those also from the biographer? Some of that was uh, from Justice Ginsburg that the court provided to us. So yeah, we did. Some from the court. Yeah. Some from the biographers, and then some when we were filming at her home, there were like a bunch of photo albums. We just quickly, like while while the scene was being filmed of Clara, her granddaughter, and Justice Ginsburg together, we were like quickly going through and putting some little mm-hmm. post-its for, for yeah. yeah. One thing you don't do is use any slates, which have come to be the bane of my existence as a professor here. Um, can you talk about how you got away with that? You know. Yeah. Well, we had you know. Great editor. Yeah. And one other just trick on that. We designated someone who can, you know, is a character who can talk about legal issues in plain language, and that's Nina Totenberg. And after the initial sit-down interview with her, when we had close to, when we had a fine cut of the film, we went back, did an audio-only interview with Nina Totenberg, in which we basically, not giving her word by word, but got her to say things that we needed to be set, some, some transitions that we needed made, just audio only, and then created. Uh, Wasn't, not many. Maybe, not you know, many, not three many, or four, two, maybe? Maybe, at, at most, yeah. I actually wanted to ask one more technical question that occurred to me while I was watching it. You have a scene where she's watching herself on Saturday Night Live. It's very difficult to shoot those kinds of scenes where you're showing your character footage of themselves, and actually, it actually plays well. Can you talk about how you set that up? The reason it plays so nicely, I think, is that what you're seeing in the film is not exactly just the day as it unfolded. We're cutting pretty quickly from that one shot where you're looking over the shoulder and seeing her to the actual foot, to the actual SNL footage. Like most of what most of what you're seeing, Kate McKinnon, you know, three seconds to establish that every time. Then you go to the full screen of the whole thing, and then you see the great, you know, close up. Um, of her laughing, because fortunately we did have... We had two cameras. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. so we're shooting one camera over his shoulder looking at it and one camera looking at her. And we didn't tell her what we were going to show her. So we just said we wanted to show you a few excerpts of Mm -hmm. things. And so we showed her the footage of her uh, and Marty you know, on their honeymoon and got her reaction there when she says, oh, he's, he's so young, yeah. so we moving. So young, yeah. We showed yeah. her a couple sound bites that we didn't yeah. end up using in the film, mm-hmm. and then we're like, oh, and, and we'd gone too long, yeah. so the whole court staff is pointing at their watches, <laughs> like, okay. So time, we already had it, up. we knew we wanted to show the SNL, and that was gonna be the last thing, so we had a little code with the person who was running uh, the machine, and we're like, okay, go to number five, because we didn't want to have to say to her, like, go to the Saturday Night Lives oh, now, and so we're like, right. okay, clip number five now, because when they were like, well, <laughs> How much time did you have with her? You know, that day it was pretty efficient. I mean, overall, we followed her around for, you know, 16 months or however long it was. So I would say maybe 
20 hours, 21 hours. But in some cases, she would be, you know, at Fordham Law School giving a talk, and then, you know, we might, hi, Justice Ginsburg, here we are, we're back here, you're way up there. I mean, and then we'd go and talk to her briefly. But there wasn't a lot of interaction in those events that, that she was doing. But then we did get the time, you know, the personal time with her uh, at home, with Clara in her office, and then, you know, working out. That was sort of one chunk that we did in June, and then in July, you know, which I told you that she said she'd give us an interview in two years, and she stuck to that. I mean, that's when we got the interview. And we actually <laughs> tried at one point, we tried to kind of sneak in and say, could, you know, could, could we, we get the up. interview, move it up? And she's like, you know, I told you, two years. And it's like, okay. So we did that interview in July, um, and that, you know, and, and the How long was the, the interview? excerpt. How long that was the actual sit-down? The whole thing was an hour and it's an hour interview. Yeah. Wow. And a, and about a quarter. And the one the one thing I would say about that is that before we interviewed her, we had already structured the film. So we knew, okay, she's talked about Harvard, she talked about it here and she talked about it there. We don't need any more from Harvard, but we do need to ask her about her mother and we do need to ask her about this. So in fact, you know, her strategy worked pretty well because it helped us focus what we needed to, to talk to her about. We had a rough cut that, in fact, Amy had already yeah. seen by the time of the interview because we wanted to make sure that there, was, there wasn't going to be a situation where Amy and her colleague Courtney wanted, uh, wanted us to include something else and it was too late. We knew we only had this one sit-down interview, so it was. I, I, I found that actually a fairly yeah. scary part to give them a cut of the film to judge Without where we didn't even interview. have the main interview in, but we felt we really had to do that. How was it, that rough cut? You know, it was, it was really smart. You know, they knew exactly where she belonged. And that was just so, it was a strategy, it was efficient, and you walked into that room knowing exactly what you needed. So, so you know, we, you could see w how the film would be because it, it just, it left space for her. Amy, CNN took this film to Sundance, and can you talk a bit about the, the rollout for the film and how it was planned? Well, as every aspiring filmmaker knows, that's kind of the holy grail, so we had aimed this film at Sundance. You know, we had the honor of having Justice Ginsburg with us at Sundance, so it made it like a much bigger event than I think most films can experience at Sundance. So I think we were all, all of us, sort of in a little bit of a state of shock that day because she was sort of an unlikely celebrity for the film community, but she got an amazing reception. She did a talk that morning with Robert Redford. She was seemingly so thrilled to meet Robert Redford, which was sort of, was. He, was, he was thrilled to meet her and she was thrilled to yes, meet him. And they are the same age, which I think is just fascinating. Yeah. Um, so seeing them together was like a super treat. And, um, you know, we went to the screening and the screening was like wildly well received. She was there. She seemed to be very moved by the film. She surprised everybody and came on stage and took some questions and Betsy and Julie were able to talk to her. And that was, that was just really just an amazing, amazing moment and experience. And to see how she reacted the, to the film was also phenomenally gratifying. I mean, for you guys, like a huge relief. She had um, not seen it. 
And she, she never asked to see it ahead of time, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, those of you who you know know that people are always asking to see uh, your work ahead yes. of time, she just, I don't know, she never asked. And, and for, so and what did she say to you after she saw the film? Uh, what, well, <laughs> she said nice things. I mean, she said it exceeded her expectations, basically. She was, I don't know what she was expecting. <laughs> like, <laughs> She said her expectations were, were quite high. Were high, <laughs> and that exceeded them. Yes. She was um, also very visibly moved yeah. by it. You know, I was sitting very close to her. I could see her emotional state, and it was very. Mo she was very moved. But from that point on, just to condense it all, we took on partners to distribute the film theatrically and for you know distribution around the world and streaming rights and all of that. And it, we had two partners, Magnolia and Participant. It got a phenomenal rollout theatrically and you know, did hit box office records. You know, it's now the 22nd or 23rd uh, biggest box office take for a documentary in, you know, the last 30 or 40 years. So it's way up there. Um, yes, yes. So, I mean, I think for a lot of us that sort of grew up in the broadcast news era, the idea that a, that a, a news station like CNN would go to Sundance and then try to have the movie in theaters first before it goes to TV seems a little weird. So can you talk about that? It, it was really our idea from the beginning that we didn't think anybody would come and watch a feature documentary on CNN without some kind of advance um, partnerships and a big rollout. So the, the advantage of, of us going last is that this film has been reviewed in you know every publication around the country and People have talked about it, it's got an amazing buzz, and we all know too that people don't always run to the theater to see a documentary. So we never felt like the theater cannibalized the CNN showing of the broadcast. So we kind of ride the wave of all the attention and publicity that a good documentary will get. It's one of the ways we finance our films too because we in some cases put all the money in to make the film and then by selling the rights to Magnolia Participant, you know, we earn back some of that money. So we don't mind going last. I did have a teeny bit of worry that given the box office, maybe every single person in America had, had seen, it, seen it. <laughs> and therefore, like, why are we putting it on TV? But that was not the case. It did and well. It did really well. So we like, we like this system of, of being last and just benefiting from everybody else paying attention to it. Okay, all righty. Um, I'm gonna ask for questions from the audience. Hi, thank you so much for being here this evening. Um, I know you've spoken to the fact that as editors, you have to make decisions when constructing a narrative and there were things you had to take out. As human beings, what are some things that you really connected with that were hard for you personally to let go of? Huh, as human we're beings. Talk, we're, we're not, we're not used to answering questions yeah, as human as beings. Human talking to two journalists. Talk, Don't you know that journalists are human, human beings? beings. <laughs> we have no sentimentality. It's like, ah, get rid no, of it. No. You know, I think, um, I think the things that we cut out that were sometimes hard to let go of were often sort of variations on things that are in the film. Like anything sort of moving or funny feels a little hard to let go of. And yet, like, you know, along with the riding the elephant together humor between Scalia and Ginsburg, there's a great story that he tells about her going parasailing. And... It was a funny story, and Scalia and Ginsburg do a little riff on it, just like they do with the elephant. But in the end, like a, there was, there were no photos or footage of Justice Ginsburg parasailing. 
Um, so that felt just like sad. I mean, I don't know if you guys have had that experience with uh, things you're putting together. Sometimes like mentioning something if you can't show it, just like, you know. And uh, But also it was sort of like the same kind of story as the other story. And in the end, it's like kind of pick, pick one and go with it. Um, my question's more technical. I'm curious to know how large of a production team you had and also what cameras you guys used to shoot on. We had a giant production team. <laughs> it was huge. Um, Small production team. Very teeny. Very teenies. So we had our associate producer, uh, Nadine Natur. Columbia J School, J class of 2012. 2012. Nadine was, uh, you know, working away the entire production. And, you know, we were hiring our camera crew, obviously, and two cameras, shooting, shooting two cameras. Canon C300. But you were hiring freelance as you went, not... Freelance yeah, camera as we went. Right, I mean, the same DP throughout the, throughout the film, but working, you know, on a day, mm -hmm. day rate basis. Sometimes, not always, we would fly her somewhere and then pick up a local crew, you know, like in Washington or something. And then, obviously, archive, uh, we had an archive producer working... It's pretty, you know, when on a shoot, we'd have a PA and, and uh, you know, two cameras and... Two cameras, audio, about, yeah, like about audio. five or six people. But pretty, crew, so it's pretty uh, lean and mean. Pretty five lean. And then, then five we did editorial staff plus an editor and a DP. So fairly lean and mean. Yeah. And an, and an O and AE. E. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you. <laughs> We had an AE working with the editor, which, you know, helped yeah. tremendously. To have to have both of them. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, you got some FaceTime with Orrin Hatch, and you know, it, in such a polarized time, how did you decide on the peripheral characters who may disagree with Justice Ginsburg? Yeah, I mean, it it seemed really important to interview Orrin Hatch because of the role he played in her confirmation, and you know, that was kind of our guiding principle for most of the interviews that we did in general. I mean, you'll notice that this film is not full of a lot of experts. You know, there are experts, they're really smart people in the film, but most of them have a connection, a personal connection to her, and Orrin Hatch, who does represent a conservative point of view, has a very strong connection with Justice Ginsburg because of the role he played in the confirmation hearings and ultimately voting for her. We didn't know what he would say. I mean, we, in this environment, we were prepared for him to maybe roll it back a little bit, and au contraire, as he said at the end of the interview, I love Justice Ginsburg. I mean, just like that. He, it was kind of... Weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we actually had a little bit of a difficult time having finding someone to sort of play the role of just giving a, some basic uh, conservative criticism on just the viewpoint of her view of constitutional law, as well as on the Trump stuff, um, mainly because we, we went to some of the um, maybe most expected, um, most well-known conservative legal minds who you might think of if you kind of know the Washington conservative lawyer landscape. 
and we're surprised by the number of them that said, like, you know, off the record, I really like the justice, but I wouldn't want to go on camera saying that, like, or, or, you know, or a more expected thing, like, actually, I argue cases before the Supreme Court sometimes, so I'm certainly not going to say anything um, bad about it. In the end, it was another and much more well-known conservative legal mind who basically took it upon himself to f figure out who might be that voice and, and gave us Professor Alvare, so... Uh, I was wondering, this is a very sort of sit-down interview heavy film and you have little bits of verite scenes. Can you talk a little bit about your choice in verite versus sit-down and then why you chose not to have any more verites, like with her son and daughter, etc., and choosing the granddaughter instead? Justice Ginsburg sort of pointed us toward her granddaughter. You know, we wanted to ask her to film some more personal moments because, yeah, we wanted as much verite as we could get. But, you know, you can't shoot in the Supreme Court. You can't hang out when they're arguing cases. I mean, you know, that just doesn't happen. And, and shooting, even shooting that group of high school students that she's addressing, oh, my goodness, the, you can't even imagine the rules for how you shoot in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, it's very restricted. Give us a sense of them. What are they? <laughs> because I heard you talk about this a couple of times. They agreed to let us in to shoot the beauty shots of the court. We had exactly an hour, not of shooting, but from the time we walked into that room to the time we walked out. And there were very specific rules about where there was like a team of three people whose whole job was to tell us like where we could step and where we couldn't. So the cameraman would be coming. To, we, we wanted to get shots from up, her you know, perspective. From, from the perspective of the justices. Yeah, looking down like, oh, my God, no. And they're like, well, could we stand here? And they'd be like, no, no, no. And they're like, well, what about here? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Well, what if we're here? Like, no. So, um, so it was this very weird situation where we, because we had such a short time, Betsy was supervising one camera person. I was with another. We were trying not to shoot at each other, you know, to get the other person in the shot. And like, every, and each of us had like, there was like a team of minders just telling you like, and for apparently, like no notice, noticeable reason. <laughs> but yeah. So with so the with the teenage with the classroom, there were rules on that as well. Well, there were there were rules. We we that was at the court. That was at the court, and and they didn't want us to put a wireless mic on her because. And then they said she never leaves the podium. And then she proceeded to walk in front of the podium, and so you couldn't hear anything. So then Julie crawled on the floor with a microphone like this. I have a photo of her literally on the floor with her butt up in the air with her can going like this, trying to capture the audio while the sound man is, you know, scrambling to try to get, I mean, so that was number one. And then the, the event happened and, you know, it was very, it was moving and, and some of the kids asked questions and one, one particular girl was just so earnest and heartfelt and so after Justice Ginsburg had left, I went over, as I would, you know, my news background kind of kicking in, you know, went over just to talk to her with the camera, and just, or camera woman, just grabbed her over there and started to say, you know, what does Justice Ginsburg mean to you, or some, you know, dopey question that I was started to ask, and they came running over. There's a rule that nobody can be interviewed in the Supreme Court except for a Supreme Court justice. So it was like, okay, so I won't interview her. <laughs> Two quick questions. Were there any aspects, any topics that you were perhaps wanted to touch on and the justice uh, 
vetoed. And two, uh, have you gotten any reaction from the other justices to the film? Yeah, um, so no, really nothing that she vetoed. I mean, we knew better than to ask questions about uh, pending cases, and truthfully, there were a lot of really interesting cases during the main term that we were working on this film, both either cases that were being heard or cases where the court had just decided that they were, you know, had granted certain they were going to hear a case. You know, we knew that it was a non-starter, and our time with her was always limited, so we're not going to start asking questions that she couldn't answer. And on the other justices? On the other justices, I know that Justice Sotomayor <laughs> went uh, and, uh, and really liked the film. Yeah, Justice Sotomayor, has, if you, if you go search it on Twitter, you'll find that she's, she's made kind of, all of her public appearances recently. <laughs> she sort of like plugs the film, which is kind of wonderful. <laughs> um, Justice Breyer yeah. came to How many people our, can yes, say Justice they Breyer have a Supreme was Court justice doing PR for you, right? <laughs> That's great. And, and Justice Roberts, we don't know if he saw it. We don't know, but when we, we saw him not long ago and we were surprised by his seeming deep amusement and friendliness towards the concept of the film and the fact that it, it, it had done well in the box office. He laughed pretty hard when that was mentioned in an <laughs> event we were at. So, I was wondering, what were the challenges uh, actually of uh, having, as a main character of your film, someone who is pretty reserved like her? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, the biggest challenge is to get used to uh, Justice Ginsburg's rhythm of talking because unlike some chatty people I know who don't like silence, uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg waits and thinks about what she's going to say. That's what ev everybody talks about this. This is just from the time she was young. So if, even if you just say, how are you, you know, she waits to think about it. And... <laughs> Some, that's for somebody who's a little nervous and <laughs> you just like you, you feel like you just want to jump in there and I think you were really good when you interviewed at the, the thing when you said when she was laughing so hard at Saturday Night Live and then she says, um, he says do, do you, does it remind you of you and she says no and then she pauses and then she says you know like seconds go by you didn't say anything then she says except for the collar. <laughs> you know, it was so funny. You know, so by then we had learned just to wait. Um, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing. And the pauses turn out to be dramatic. Yeah. Which is perfect. And also funny. <laughs> there was this section in the movie talking about her friendship with Scalia and also how she got, you know, massive bipartisan support for her confirmation. And so I was wondering if she brought up or if you talked to her at all more broadly about partisanship especially considering current issues of the day and whether you know she had any commentary whether partisanship had gone up or down or stayed the same um you know in recent months you know even since our film she certainly has made some public comments about partisanship increasing and not being not feeling great about that she talked about the relate, you know, the what you saw in the film, and I think this is she sees it as a kind of example for the country in a way, the kind of friendly civil relationship with the other justices. Still, even now. Uh, yes, even e even now. Yep, yeah. she's 
she's made a strong pitch for, you know, uh, hoping for consensus and for less vitriol uh, all around. Um, so, uh, June, it's your cue. Oye, oye, oye. oye. <laughs> like to welcome Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg known as the notorious RBG. Well, the audience went wild, didn't they? They did. It was <laughs> it was a standing ovation that went on so long I didn't think we were actually going to do anything else after that. Uh, she wasn't an announced guest. I mean, there was this mysterious empty chair throughout the Q&A, but it was really this huge surprise shock. And she mostly talked about how great the film was, how much she loved it. She was asked the inevitable question about how long she's going to be in the job, and she gave the inevitable answer, which is as long as she can do the job. That's remarkable. Well, it's such a terrific film, and I especially appreciated how they integrated the somewhat dense legal material with the story to make it accessible to broader audiences, right? And we were all so hooked on it. It was a great way to educate everybody. That's right, and that's why I couldn't be more excited for Betsy and Julie's new film. They just announced it. They are going to be doing a biopic about the beloved chef Julia Child. And it's bound to be another hit, I can imagine. So we will be looking for that project from them in the coming months, right? That's right, they're, they're um, working again with CNN, so I cannot wait. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was originally produced by J-School grad Sarah Wyman, although we're sad to say Sarah is now moving on. So we are welcoming our new On Assignment producer, Christina Shaman. She also is a J-School grad. She was a past DuPont fellow and helped out on the podcast when she was here. Lauren Miragildo Santos is our coordinating producer. And we also had help from our new fellows, Carissa Quimbao, and Jack Rosser Munley. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journal and visit us at onassignmentpodcast.org. Until next time. <laughs>